Welcome to Peace Lab, a podcast focused on current events, faith, and the face of Anabaptist peacemaking in the 21st century. Peace Lab is a partnership between the Peace and Justice Support Network and the Mennonite Inc. magazine and website. I'm Hannah Heinzeker, the Executive Director of the Mennonite Inc., and I'm joined today by Drew Hart, who is a professor in theology at Messiah College, a blogger, writer, and author most recently of Trouble I've Seen, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism. So Drew, thanks for joining me today, um, and in some ways being sort of a guinea pig as we get this podcast off the ground. Uh, thanks, Hannah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I'm glad to be here in dialogue with you. Well, so tell me first a little bit about your work at Messiah and how the year's starting and what your course that you're most excited about is. Yeah, so I'm just kind of getting warmed up uh, teaching at Messiah, and uh, the, probably the course that I'm really excited about teaching this year is African American Theology. It's a course I've taught before, although... I've always taught um, evening courses once a week, and now I'm teaching Monday, Wednesday, Friday courses for like 50-minute segments, which on one hand, I don't know if I really like that that much because they're so short, but we are able to dig into a lot of different materials together, and the students seem really engaged and, and are glad to be there. They chose to take this class. Most of them have to take a theology class, but not necessarily African-American theology, so uh, they wanted to be here. Uh, and so, yeah, we're just diving in. We've talked about everything from Nat Turner to Frederick Douglass. Uh, soon we'll be talking and reading some of Sojourner Truth's uh, stuff. And, and the students seem to be really engaged and wanting to dialogue and wrestle and even question some of the assumptions about their own Christian formation and own theological understanding. So it's kind of a, you know, what you kind of want in a classroom. And so um, I'm excited about where it's going to go and what kind of learning we'll do together through the rest of this semester. Good. And I assume you'll eventually get to James Cone. Is he on that reading list somewhere all okay. over it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So um, okay. we, uh, we'll we read one smaller essay, but then we also will be reading The Cross and the Lynching Tree as um, one of the main texts for the class. So they're going to read that, and they're also going to read Kelly Brown Douglas's Stand Your Ground. But I wanted sure. to give them some samples through history and give them some framework. A lot of students don't have much history understanding of our American history and particularly as it relates to African-American experience and uh, theological and religious thought and so just giving them a foundation to kind of set them up to even be probably better readers of Cone and Douglas and others. Yeah no that makes sense giving them the context to to read those texts in. Well, for um, people who might be listening who have not encountered your work before, Drew, you use this word anablactivist and talk about anablactivism. And I'm sure you may be tired of answering this question, but do you want to just give kind of the cliff notes description of what anablactivism or the label anablactivist means to you? Yeah, so I usually um, say it in one of two ways. May I give you both? So in the shorthand, I'll just say anablactivism is about anabaptism plus black theology plus activism and it's really taking seriously those different traditions and conversations around who God is and what God is doing among us um, both in the black church tradition as well as in anabaptist living ongoing anabaptist conversations that are going on and then with an activist slant right how do we actually sure. um, live that out I guess another way of emphasizing it is to think about the ways that um, different Christians have in some ways rejected um, the American God, the Western God, the white Jesus, the violent God, you know, the oppressive God, um, and have instead sought to rediscover who Jesus is by taking seriously his life and teachings and taking seriously their own encounters with God on the ground. And so um, I think in some ways both 
uh, black theology and Anabaptism are at least at their best projects that, that are wrestling with these deep questions around who God is in the way and not necessarily accepting the status quo frameworks for thinking about who God is that we've kind of inherited from um, previous generations and creeds and whatever. Yeah, sure. Well, so interestingly, you recently wrote a blog for the Mennonite that was talking about, you know, the nature of God, especially it relates to the question of whether God is fundamentally nonviolent. And here you are on this podcast that we're calling Peace Lab and talking about uh, what peace kind of means and what peacemaking looks like right now in this moment for Anabaptists and, and beyond at those circles too. So I realized that, you know, at least in Mennonite and often Anabaptist circles, we kind of throw this word peace around a lot. Yeah. Maybe we're a little bit desensitized to it. And I wonder, you know, as you think about that word peace, what does that mean for you? Yeah, I mean, so I think peace for me, um, and I should I should say maybe this as a, a defensive statement, but, you know, I'm very committed to peace. I think sometimes, I think some people who read the article seem to misread what I was trying to get at. So, I don't know. I, I'll just put that out there. Uh, but at the same time, um, peace, you know, it's 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 the well-being um, of people. It's people thriving. It's, it's people living in harmony together as God desired. People uh, existing outside of forms of oppression and violence crushing down and destroying their ways of life and their ways of being together. Um, so in some ways it's, you know, the biblical idea of shalom that, you know, things are as God intended, both for how we live with one another, how we live before God, how we live um, on this earth and in creation and as a part of creation. And so um, it's really seeing people thrive in that way that God, I think, intended for humanity to thrive um, and desires for all of us. Um, so that's my understanding of peace. Um, it's it's seeing the real that being realized in real concrete ways in people's lives. Well, and if you don't mind, let's dig in even a little bit further to you know that blog post because I I think what I appreciated about your reflections there was naming that sometimes we can kind of sanitize the God story that we read at least in Scripture or um, also kind of. I don't know, underestimate what uh, communities who are struggling and experiencing very real day-to-day -day violence might actually kind of need or what it might mean for God to be alongside them. And I don't, I don't know that I have an answer to that, but I appreciated that question. And I wonder if you'd say a little bit more about, yeah, just, just dig into that a little bit. Um, yeah. I mean, and I guess this really comes back to me struggling with both. I mean, I've, I've really been deeply shaped by um, not only the black church, but by Anabaptist communities um, and they each have really helped me ask a different set of questions. Um, there's no question in my mind that Anabaptists have helped me really think about peace and peacemaking in a way that I hadn't prior. Um, but I sometimes, you know, as we're having these conversations around who God is and what God is doing in the world, um, it seems to downplay God's uh, role and his relationship and his commitment to vulnerable people and oppressed people in the world and especially those that are facing you know death dealing situations right now um, all around the world and in my own communities often and so how for me Mike the question is how do we wrestle with the two and wrestle with a God that sure is peacemaking but it also is about liberating oppressed people from violence as well and and to do so and take the biblical narrative seriously um, 
in and that can mean a whole bunch of things but it seems like it's not it's too easy to just say god is outside of the violence god is a pacifist god is this or that um without first struggling with what does it mean to have a god that's acting within history um on behalf of you know vulnerable people um and i think that if we take even if we're willing to wrestle with some of the depictions of God in the Old Testament, I still think it's just a little too easy to just say that he is not engaged in anything that we might at least call violence, right? Um, sure. Um, it might be overstepping for me to say God is violent. I probably wouldn't necessarily go that far, but I don't know if I would say God is a pacifist or nonviolent either. Um, but I would say, as I do in the piece, that God is peacemaking because I think God is working and moving to bring shalom in very real concrete ways to this world. I think that's what God desires and wants us to participate in as well. I remember uh, for me, it was impactful to take a class with Dr. Monica Coleman um, at Claremont School of Theology, who, and I remember very concretely sitting in one class and hearing her say that she needed to believe that God wanted to actively rescue her and do whatever it took from a certain situation or her community and, and that struck me. And I wondered, yeah, I guess I wondered some of these same questions about what that might mean for God to do that or to be in actively in that struggle. Right. Yeah, I think that's important. And I think it's very easy for someone who's maybe not necessarily feeling those daily pressures to just kind of feel like it's a very simple issue. God is peace. He doesn't engage. He's not violent. But I think like, you know, when you're actually involved, if to say that and to say it unequivocally might mean at times to say then that God is neutral to the situations that are going on, that God is not actively engaged in fixing, you know, what's happening. And so I think it's just a really messy situation. I think maybe we need a little bit more humility in thinking about what God is or isn't doing in the world, especially when you're trying to hold and keep track of both things that I believe are true, God's desire to be peacemaking and God's desire to protect the vulnerable and at times to make judgments, right? And to intervene on behalf of that judgment, um, both towards oppressors and oppressed people. Well, uh, we said at the beginning in the introduction that you've written a book, this Trouble I've Seen book, and that's been out for what, about a year now? Is that? Uh, not even, uh, I guess nine, January came out. So. Oh, January. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The part that comes after the colon in the title is changing the way the church views racism. And for those who haven't picked up this book yet, talk a little bit about what you were hoping to accomplish with this book and, and why you wrote it. Yeah, so I was just hoping really to really offer the church a, a thicker uh, framework and understanding of race and racism, and particularly with a theological perspective, a perspective that is deeply Christian in its um, standpoint. And so um, I think that, you know, right now, uh, there's a lot of things going on in our society around race and racism, white supremacy, police brutality, mass incarceration, and, you know, we could go on and on and on. Um, and it seems like we in the church are just having the same conversations over and over and over again. Um, there's lots of divides and divisions and a lot of, not a lot of conversation happening. Um, and it seems like we were just so doomed to just kind of repeat the cycle of half the church being in apathy towards um, the violence that's going on, the racial violence that's going on in our society. And so uh, my heart kind of broke after 
you know, Ferguson happened, I just felt like, you know, as a former pastor, theologian, um, and someone committed to the life of the church, um, that I just needed to, you know, use my gifts to speak into the situation. And so um, I wanted to help us think historically, think socially, uh, to understand things like racial hierarchy, um, how racialized society, um, all these different things, but then to do it in a way that's accessible. Um, so I, I set out to tell a lot of stories and usually my own stories, personal examples from my own life and um, sometimes of close family members um, that I thought would be meaningful to help kind of illustrate what I'm getting at rather than just keep it at the theoretical level. Sure. And you've done, it seems to me like you've been doing a lot of speaking, traveling to communities to kind of talk about these themes as well. And so how is the book being received? What are some of the interesting conversations you've had as you've kind of taken it on the road? Yeah, I mean, I've actually, I'll be honest, Hannah, I've been shocked at its reception. Um, It's been received very well. Um, And so I've kind of have been engaging, you know, especially local communities, but also community groups, universities, seminaries, um, all across the country. And um, people are, there's a lot of folks who are ready to have this conversation. Not everybody, but there's a lot of folks who are ready to have this conversation. And I've kind of been um, humbled by how many emails I've gotten where people would give an example, like when you said, you know, you gave your sweet tea example, you know, in your book or this or that, or this conversation, you know, like that opened my eyes and I could see it from a different perspective. And that's kind of really what I wanted to do, right, was to change the way the church views racism. And so um, it was really meaningful for me to see that, you know, there are a lot of folks who are open and willing um, and that I think the combination of all that's going on around them and then just kind of having an accessible resource for them to kind of process uh, their own thoughts and to do some self-examination of their own kind of um, assumptions I think is showing that, you know, there's still hope for the church in America that we can kind of hopefully be that light, you know, that we've been called to be. Well, and I remember, I think we talked back when the book kind of first came out, and one of the things you said at that time was, I didn't set out to write a book about racial reconciliation. This was a book about how we understand racism. And yeah, say more about that, because I remember finding that very interesting, and it made sense to me that that this was we needed to start on the level of what we know or epistemology. Yeah, yeah. So I think um, you know the term racial reconciliation is a popular term right now um, in many churches, not all churches. It's not known in some in many churches as well. But but usually the emphasis of racial reconciliation as people are using that term, it's usually purely um, relational. Um, it's about one particular congregation on on their Sunday mornings, connecting across racial lines and usually having multicultural worship, um, hopefully a multicultural and multiracial leadership. Hopefully that's not always the case. But it's kind of like this, you know, what the pattern that I've seen is that the congregations, they kind of do this thing on Sunday. They pat themselves on the back for kind of arriving at this kind of almost like racial utopia moments Um, within the congregation, but then Monday through Saturday, most of the congregants still live very racialized lives, number one. And then second, there seems to be a disconnect between their understanding of what's happening in their congregation and a larger understanding of race, how it develops, and how it continues to shape and organize people's lives today, and particularly as it relates to issues of justice, right? And so sometimes issues of justice and oppression can actually not be talked about 
while people are pursuing racial reconciliation, which seems to be a very strange combination for me. And so I knew that um, while that's not necessarily the case for everyone who's writing about racial reconciliation, I knew that I wanted to write a different kind of book. Um, and so while I, I am deeply committed to reconciliation, I've kind of uh, been a skeptic of the phrase racial reconciliation and what a lot of people mean by that. Um, but if we can have a, a, a framework that really understands racial hierarchy and what I, we could also say is white supremacy um, and not thinking of it just as something that the KKK did in the 1950s, but in the everyday kind of mundane ways that we all kind of um, live that out and then kind of internalize these frameworks, then I think that's something that, um, that we need to be able to do. And I think that as it relates to epistemology, right, questions of knowing, because like, I think, especially with race, everyone thinks that they're an expert, right? Everyone mm. assumes that they already know um, what race and racism are and what we need to do. And people have extremely different perspectives. Um, and unfortunately, in the church, it's extremely racialized in terms of, you know, what the white church has typically done in response to it has usually been focused on individualistic points and not systemic and structural and thinking about, you know, historical um, patterns and the inertia of all this stuff as it impacts our communities and our everyday lives. And so uh, for us to kind of step back and kind of, you know, again, expand our frameworks and then also challenge our socialized intuitions about um, what the issues are and, and who we ought to turn to um, to see a little bit clearer on what's happening you know, that's kind of what the book is about. That makes sense. It is an interesting moment right now in the United States, not just in U.S. Christianity, but we've seen the rise of this Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. Social media is, is kind of elevating the reality that's always been there, but the killings of black people at the hands of the police, police brutality, mass incarceration, some of that's becoming more public. I mean, in this moment, what would your invitation be to Christians, specifically the white Christian church? Um, you know, um, it's interesting. Most people, you know, when they look back at the 60s, you know, it's very easy to look back and everyone's like, you know, yeah, I would have marched with King and I would have, you know, done this and X, Y, Z. And how could those white people do that? That was unchristian, you know, and, and people want to wag their finger at the folks in the past and kind of scapegoat them as terrible people. Um, and then they don't realize that in many ways, people are just uh, repeating that same cycle is just a new, it's a little different, but because it's always different. It's never, we never go backwards in that sense, but we are reproducing the same problems. And so I think my challenge is, I think my challenge is, uh, as it relates to the Black Lives Matter movements, is to, you know, instead of um, just going off of kind of the dumb cultural um, perspectives and intuitions around race and racism, what people in the media say is the solutions or isn't the problem or whatever, uh, I really invite people to, you know, uh, take a more counterintuitive move and seek out those that are most like, you know, Christ crucified, like those who are being crushed by our society. Um, I think that God has always been God has always been committed to the most vulnerable and oppressed in our society, the widows and the orphans, the poor and the oppressed. And I think that, you know, we have an opportunity as the church to actually embody what it means to be a called out people um, that are willing to come alongside and participate in what God has always been doing, which is restoring and healing and doing justice and liberating um, and making peace. 
um, but doing it concretely in a way that, you know, prioritizes the least, the last, and the lost of our society, um, those who are on the margins, those who are most, uh, those who mainstream main society forgets, right, and ignores and turns their face away from, rather than um, the Jesus that enters into the village and seems to seek out those who are um, in the cracks and holes of our society um, that society had neglected. And so um, I think there's a challenge for us, again, um, to think about what's going on and, and, and then to hear the call of Jesus in the midst of the Black Lives Matter movement happening. You know, Jesus is inviting us to drop everything and follow after him um, and to jump in and to not uh, be apathetic bystanders to the pain and sufferings of others in the world. Well, so to close, I've kind of been asking people to think about um, or what's keeping you preoccupied these days? What kind of resources? What's, I don't know, what's drawing you in these days? What is drawing me in? I reread Matt Turner's confession a couple times this week, and I was thinking, I don't know why he's, of all people, he's just stuck in my mind because Matt Turner, he isn't just, interested in revenge or retaliation but he really believed uh, that God was enacting judgment like if you read his writings it's not about revenge or retaliation at all um, so I don't know, it's just uh, so I've just been thinking about that not, not to say that I agree with what Matt Turner did um, but I guess the real question is um, I kind of and this is the Anabaptist side of me, kind of will take for granted God's peacemaking, right, um, as a starting point for deciding whether he truly heard from God or not, because he claimed to have these apocalyptic visions. Right, um, right. Right? Um, but it, it kind of challenges me to think, you know, I'm kind of fixing and deciding ahead of time that he did or didn't, because my framework of God doesn't fit with that, Right. Um, and it's just interesting, I think, for me to wrestle with that. But then also, um, he has this interesting moment where, because um, he's he's being interviewed by his point, uh, his appointed attorney, and and so after he says, you know, that this is apocalyptic vision, and his lawyer's kind of like, now what do you think? Because obviously, you know, he's arrested now. <laughs> like you can't still put your face the same point. And Matt Turner's response is was not Christ crucified? And that was his only response, was not Christ crucified. And I found that a pretty deep and profound response, um, highlighting, you know, again, that we're not talking about a God that that is triumphant, a God that is like Donald Trump flaring over the world, you know, flashing all his stuff, uh, but one that is, um, that not only was crucified, but then continues to work um, in a way that baffles both the wise and the strong of this world um, by continuing to work among crucified people and among vulnerable people in this world. And so Matt Turner's got me thinking a little bit um, this week, in a, I think in good ways, in ways, uncomfortable ways that stretch me and challenge me to keep thinking about um, pursuing God and not putting him in a box. That's good. That's good. I like probably could not have predicted that Nat Turner would have showed up as much in our first like Peace Lab episode, but it's pretty cool. Good. Hey, well, thanks so much for talking with me. I'm glad for the conversation. Thanks, Hannah. Thanks for talking. And thanks to you, any Peace Lab listeners out there, for tuning in for this conversation with Drew Hart.
If you like what you heard, you can like and follow our podcast, The Peace Lab, on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and at the websites of the Mennonite Inc. and the Peace and Justice Support Network. In addition, Peace Lab is made possible with support from Mennonite Mission Network, the mission agency of Mennonite Church USA. We hope you'll join us again next week for another conversation and episode about the ins and outs of Anabaptist peacemaking today. Mm -hmm.